Well, good morning. We're going to go ahead and begin this morning. <clears throat> Glad you're here. Hope we're all praying for Israel and Christians in Israel, especially. There are believers there. So this morning we're going to, I want to try to get you to interact with the question, why do you believe in Jesus? Why do you believe in Jesus? <clears throat> why do you believe in a man who lived 2,000 years ago you've never seen? Why would you believe that he's God in human flesh? Why would you believe that he's the only person, the only savior who can deliver you from the lake of fire for eternity? Why? I know that all of you here believe that, but why do you believe that? The answers that Christians tend to give as to why is that's how I was raised. I don't want to go to hell. Good reason. <laughs> um, all the talk and songs about God's love feels so good. My friends go to church. So I went to church. I want to please my parents. I had an experience, and Jesus seemed so real to me. I went forward at a Christian concert and accepted Jesus into my heart. That's why. Why did Jesus say people should believe in him? None of those answers. None. So I want to show you this morning the reason that Jesus gave for believing in him. If your belief in him is not based on the reason that he gave, why you should believe in him, when difficult times come, your faith in him won't be strong. So let's pray. Father, thank you that you've given us your word and that you have made clear to us who you are and who your son, our savior, the Messiah for the Jews, the deliverer for all people. You've made it really clear in your word who he is and you've preserved your word for us today. So yes, Lord, we do believe in this man who lived 2,000 years ago that we've never seen. And so I just pray that you would help us, these your people here today, to understand why you said we should believe in you. And may you be glorified and our faith be strengthened. In Jesus' name, amen. Belief in Jesus Christ actually appears to be declining around the world, um, in our country. Everywhere we look, there are battles, belief system battles, ideological battles for the hearts and the minds of people of all ages. So basically, we're living in a war zone, and it's been this way a long time, actually, the long war against God's been going on from the beginning, but it's, uh, it's getting radical now. It's a war against truth, against the Bible, against gender, against sexuality. A pop singer rages in a song about the right to kill babies in the womb, and critics hail it as empowering. A drag queen reads books to a room full of children, and anyone who disapproves is labeled a bigot. 
Men are paid to model women's clothing and are celebrated for it. Schools and librarians insist that children have access to sexually explicit books, and they call it the freedom to read. Porn is claimed to reduce sex crimes. Divorce is okay as long as it makes you happy. And I could go on and on. Maybe you've heard of George Barna. He's a pollster of Christians, quote-unquote Christians. And he's found that monthly church attendance among adults is down, monthly church attendance, down from 58% to 36% since the pandemic began. He's found that people reading the Bible outside of church events is down from 37% to 33%. Bodie Bauckham has reported an astounding statistic. He says, quote, we're losing 70 to 88% of our children in their freshman year of college. That is children of evangelical, Bible-believing Christians. 70 to 88% have nothing to do with spiritual matters by the end of their freshman year, unquote. 70 to 88%. It would seem that fewer and fewer people are believing in Jesus Christ these days. The early believers that are recorded for us in the Gospels and the book of Acts and the epistles had certainty. They had certainty that their belief in Jesus Christ was built on Facts, one fact in particular, the resurrection, and was verified by many eyewitnesses. And that certainty motivated them to go to all the world. Thomas, you know, quote, doubting Thomas, he went all the way to India. And some other apostles, by the end of the first century, they were all the way over to England in the Roman Empire. Peter, speaking to a group of Gentiles when, when a centurion asked him to come and basically proclaim the gospel to them, turn to Acts chapter 10. I want, to see, I want you to see what the conversation that went on there. So here's Peter preaching to Gentiles, non-Jews, and he's really giving them an answer as to this question. Why, why should you believe in Jesus? So Acts chapter 10, verse 38. Peter says, you know of Jesus of Nazareth. So by this time, just, I don't know, a few days, few weeks after the crucifixion and the resurrection, he's saying to these non-Jews, you know of Jesus of Nazareth. It's common knowledge. Everybody knows. You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. So he's saying, you guys know this, but we... We, apostles, are witnesses of all the things that he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. God raised him up on the third day and granted that he would become visible. I think LSB says that he would appear. So in his physical body... Jesus appeared. He became visible. He became touchable. He became hearable. 
So God raised him up on the third day and granted that he become visible, not to all the people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God. That is to us, the apostles, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. You got to catch these little words here. I'm going to talk to you in a few minutes about forensic statement analysis. You can take a course online, 99 bucks, eight hours, for forensic statement analysis. It's what detectives use when they analyze, they're, they're interviewing a suspect, they can analyze what the person says or doesn't say, and they can basically figure out whether he's telling the truth or lying. And in the Gospels, we have all kinds of unnecessary details that are given to us. For example, why did Peter say, who ate and drank, we, we ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead? Why didn't he just say, yeah, we were with him after he rose from the dead? Why does he say ate and drank? What, what's the point of those little details? Pardon? Wasn't like a vision. They were really there. The more details you get, the more accurate and reliable is the, the report, basically what this is. So keep your eyes open for all these unnecessary details. The main point could have been communicated without telling a bunch of things that the gospel writers tell us. So Peter goes on, he says, And he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God to judge as the judge of the living and the dead. Of him all the prophets bear witness that through his name everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. So why should we believe Yes, to get forgiveness of sins, but why should we believe that he really can forgive sins? Peter called them to believe because, this is what he says, Jesus performed miracles, signs, attesting miracles. It's like when you're driving down the freeway and you see this sign and it says, Meta Vista off-ramp, one-half mile. Okay? So I get it. It's coming up. If I want to take that exit, i got to start slowing down and get ready to exit the freeway. It's a sign that lets me know what's coming. And all these miracles that Jesus did were signs pointing Peter also says you should believe because he and the other apostles were witnesses of all the things that he did, chosen by God beforehand. He says he didn't appear to all the people, but he appeared to us. And we're the witnesses. He says you should believe because we ate and drank with him. He wasn't a ghost. He actually ate food and drank Wine, probably. Now turn over to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24, verse 36. So this account, this report, and you've got to understand, the Gospels and the book of Acts are historical books. They're not like Romans and Galatians. They're historical accounts. They're like a newspaper report by a, an investigative journalist. That's what Luke was like, an investigative journalist. He wasn't there. He didn't see the resurrection. He didn't see the resurrected Christ. But he went and interviewed people, right, from the beginning, Carefully, he says. So this account, this report, is of two men who were on a walking trip 
to the town of Emmaus after the resurrection. And as they're walking along, they meet Jesus on the road. They don't know who he is. He goes along with them. They invite him to have dinner with them. They sit down. And when he's breaking the bread, they all of a sudden realize who he is. And he's gone. So they turn around, go right back to Jerusalem, and here they are back in Jerusalem, and they're going to be telling the apostles what happened. So verse 36. While they were telling these things, he himself stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be to you. And they were startled and frightened and thought they were seeing a spirit, a ghost, we would say. And he said to them, why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet. It is I myself. It's me. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And when he had said this, he showed them. Notice that. Showed them his hands, and his feet. While they still could not believe it, because of their joy and amazement, they said to, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. Pretty clear, isn't it? Jesus wanted them to see and even touch the evidence. What was the evidence? Him, his body, the holes, eating, drinking. Later on, we're going to read in John 20 when he appeared to the apostles uh, when first time he appeared, remember, Thomas wasn't there, and he said, I won't believe unless I see the holes, and then he appeared again, and Thomas was there, and Jesus immediately went to Thomas, first thing, and he told Thomas why he should believe in him. Here's Jesus' answer to the question, why should you believe in him? Here's what he said to Thomas, bring your finger here. See my hands? See my hands? Bring your hand here and put it into my side and do not be unbelieving but believing. See the evidence. Touch the evidence. So you remember that, as I mentioned, Luke was, a, I think, kind of like an investigative journalist. Went around interviewing a lot of people very carefully, wrote it down in chronological order. Why? So that this man, Theophilus, who was probably a government official, could have, could know with certainty, know with certainty the things that you've been taught. Luke wrote around 60, 61 AD. Jesus was crucified and resurrected around 33. So how many years later did Luke write? 33 to 60. Do your math. What? 27. 27 years later. So, okay, so, so what's the significance of that? If this was a lie, if somebody actually stole Jesus' body, if he really didn't die on the cross, he just fainted. Later on, he came back to life or, you know, woke up. These are some of the things critics, skeptics say. If that's what happened, and Luke is going and interviewing all of these people and then recording it 27 years later, and if it wasn't true, what could have happened? The truth would have come out. 
this is fake news. Come on. We were there. That's not what happened. I saw it. There's plenty of people still alive who could have seen all of that. Okay, now turn over to John 20. Verse 19, this is what I referred to. Jesus coming amongst the disciples. They were in Jerusalem. They were hiding for fear of the Jews. So verse 19 says, So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. And the disciples, then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Why did they believe? They saw him. So Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they've been retained. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, We've seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his, in his hands the imprint of the nails, put my finger in the place of the nails, put my hand into his side, I will not believe. After eight days, his disciples were again inside. Thomas was with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Peace be with you, you know. It's okay. Don't be all upset. Don't be fearful. Don't be anxious. I'm here. What I told you would happen, that I would rise on the third day, look, it's happened. Here I am. Relax. And he said to Thomas, so he goes right to Thomas, reach here with your finger. See my hands. Thomas is going to see with his finger. Got little eyeballs in his finger. I'm going to see. And see my hands. Reach here your hand and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. This is the guy who said, I won't believe unless I see the evidence. And as soon as he saw the evidence, what does he say? My Lord and my God. Not just my rabbi. my Lord, my kurios, my master, and my God. Jesus said to him, because you've seen me, have you believed? Answer, yes. Blessed are they who do not see and yet have believed. Do you get what this all means? We don't have blind faith. You know what blind faith is, don't you? Blind faith is when you believe something and you have no real good reason to believe it. I've used the example in the past of, I used to take my kids cross-country skiing. And I was too cheap to go to a cross-country skiing area where they had groomed trails. So we just went cross-country. So we're going cross-country, and this didn't actually happen to us. But So we're going cross-country, and we're slogging along, and, and we come to this big flat area. And we go, hmm, this is a little lake. And there's a, a sign posted there, and it says, danger, thin ice. And I say to my kids, no problem. Look, there's snow over it. Well, let's go across. We'll make it. That's blind faith. We don't believe based on blind faith. We believe based on solid, reliable, historically verified eyewitness evidence. 
That's why we believe. Acts chapter 1 says, he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over 40 days and speaking about the things concerning the kingdom of God. So Jesus was crucified, three days later rose, and 40 days later, he ascends to heaven. Why did he hang around for 40 more days? They'd been with him for three years. They'd seen miracle after miracle, walking on the water, turning water into wine, raising dead people, healing sick people, casting demons out, knowing things that no human could know. I mean, they'd seen a lot. And yet he stays 40 more days. Why? It is a mind-blowing... It's just... It's not possible. It can't be. So Luke says he stayed and he appeared. It says he presented himself. It wasn't a, a PowerPoint presentation. But he was making a presentation of the evidence himself, his body, his eating. And he did this for 40 days. He kept showing them proof, 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 proof. He wanted them to be so convinced, so certain that after he left and they were going out into all the world amidst terrible persecution and suffering, he wanted them to be so certain that their faith would not waver. Well, all of this evidence is really based on what we have written in Scripture. We weren't there, but they were, and so we see the evidence through their eyes. So the question could be asked, and I'm thinking I'll ask it next week, why believe the Bible? Why should we take this book written by, when was it written? How many people wrote it, right? Over how, how, three different languages, people in all these different places. Why should we believe that it's really God's words? Vodi Bakum gives a great answer to that. He says, the Bible is a collection of reliable historical documents written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. So they could be fact-checked, right? They recorded supernatural events, events that fulfill specific prophecies, and they claimed that their writings are divine rather than human in origin. Oh, and by the way, I tried it, and it changed my life. We can have and should have the same kind of solid assurance that these early disciples had. We need to be speaking into our culture, maybe into to family members, maybe to people who are involved in other religions with complete confidence. We need to be showing them the evidence, particularly in the Gospels and the book of Acts. Did you know that Christianity, biblical Christianity, is the only religion, if you want to call it that, we prefer relationship, right? It's the only religion that is based on historical facts versus all the other religions are based on a dream, a vision, an idea, a thought, some kind of enlightenment like Buddha. He's sitting under the banyan tree or whatever tree it was, and he gets this enlightenment. Desire is the root of all evil. Just popped into his mind, I guess. 
And then he said, okay, we want to get rid of evil, stop desiring. So if you're a Buddhist monk, you wear a yellow saffron scratchy robe and you get down to one grain of rice a day. Was there any eyewitness of any fact? Nope. Just an idea. Joseph Smith, grave robber, uh, treasure hunter, he's claimed that the angel Moroni gave him these golden tablets. Did anybody ever see them? Nope. Muhammad. The Quran wasn't written until years later. No eyewitnesses. Jesus Christ, his gospel, our Bibles, give us the only faith system based on historical facts, verified by many, 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 many tested, vetted eyewitnesses. Okay, turn back to John. Maybe you're still there. We're going to go back to a little bit prior to what we've read so far. John 19. So this is the end of the crucifixion account. Verse 34 tells us about one of the soldiers piercing his side. And immediately blood and water came out. Again, details. Why do we need to know that blood and water came out? Why not this guy just pierced his side? Yes. Water and blood. Right. That's right. So there's a, I'm certainly not a medical doctor. I just read this, looked this up. There's a sack around the heart and there's a sack around the lungs. And when somebody is beaten as severely as Jesus was, fluid builds up around the heart and around the lungs. I remember a lady that used to go to our church many years ago who had cystic fibrosis. And my wife and I went to the hospital when she had, she was having a really hard time breathing because of fluid building up around her lungs. And they had to do this, the doctor, Dr. Monahan actually attended here for a while. He had to just poke a big needle through her side between her ribs to draw that fluid off so it would allow her lungs to inflate fully again. It's horrible. So this is medical facts that he was dead. He didn't just faint. He was dead. That spear pierced into his lungs and his heart, and the fluid that had built up there from the beating all came out, water and blood. All these little pieces of information are verifying evidences. And you know, you got to realize, did those people living back then, they were very familiar with dead bodies. Have you ever seen a dead body? Have you ever seen what happens with somebody when they die within 30 seconds? The blood all drains, gravity. If they're standing up, he was upright, the blood would have drained down to his feet. His feet would have turned purple. They know that. They saw dead bodies all the time. I saw my father die. I was in the room when he died. And within a minute, his skin was ashen gray. They knew what a dead body looked like, but they didn't know about the water and the blood. They would not have known, nor would they have really needed to know. That was proof that he was really dead. They could look at him and know he was dead. 
So John 19, verse pick, let's pick up in verse 35. And when he who has seen, John referring to himself, and he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true, he knows that he's telling the truth so that you also may believe. You see what John's saying? I was there. I saw. I'm testifying. I'm giving you a report. My testimony is true. It's reality. I know I'm telling the truth. And I'm doing all this so that you may believe. Why do we believe in Jesus? Because these witnesses saw verified certainty. That's why we believe. And these things came to pass to fulfill the scripture. Not a bone of him shall be broken. Old Testament quote. And again, another scripture says, they shall look upon him whom they pierced. So the gospels are historical accounts. Let's keep going. Let's go on to chapter 20 and read a little bit more. I just want you to see the repeated over and over and over reason why Jesus and the apostles gave as to why we should believe in Jesus, that he is the Christ. So chapter 20 of John, verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw, there it is, saw, eyewitness, saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, it's the way he refers to himself, and said to them, they've taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So at this point, what was Mary thinking? He's risen from the dead, just like he said. Nope. Somebody stole the body. She doesn't believe he's risen. She doesn't believe he's alive. He's dead. Somebody stole the body. So Peter and the other disciple went forth, and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together. Mary ran back. Again, these are details. We, don't, we didn't need to be told that. John could have just said Mary went back to the disciples and Peter and John went down there to the tomb. But to give this extra information, they were running. And the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. So John gets there first. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there. But he didn't go in. And so Simon Peter also came following him and entered the tomb. This is Simon, right? He's a risk taker, no problem. I'm going in. And he saw the linen wrappings lying there. So now John and Peter both saw the linen wrappings. You remember that the way they took care of a body is sort of like a mummy. They would wrap it up in linen strips. And what did Simon Peter also see? The face cloth, which had been on his head, not lying in the, with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. Other versions say folded up. So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb also entered, and he saw and believed. There it is. Clears bell. He saw and he believed. Now, why all this extraneous details? Extraneous because they could have made the point. They went down, they looked into the tomb, it was empty, Jesus wasn't there. Okay, then they go back and tell the other disciples. Why do we have to be told they were running? Why do we have to be told about the linen wrappings? Why do we have to be told about the face cloth, that it was in a different place? 
Because when you look at all this evidence, the only reasonable conclusion is not that somebody stole the body. If they had stolen the body, would they have unwrapped it first and then folded up or rolled up the little face cloth and put it in a different spot? No. They would have been afraid of getting caught. They would have just grabbed the body and gone. And they're running. What is that telling us? What is it telling us that they're stooping down? Why are we told stooping? Well, apparently it was a low entryway. So we're given all of these details that add to the validity. They're not, we don't need to, to, to be told these things. Their urgency, that they cared so much. So we are not told how the resurrection was accomplished. We're only told that it was accomplished. So it's a mystery. It's recorded that during those 40 days, he gave them many convincing proofs. What's, what's a proof? Can eyewitnesses be, t- be trusted? No. Not unless they're tested first. Were they really there? They claimed to be there and saw it. Were they really there? Is there some kind of other evidence to show that they really were there? You know, nowadays, what do we do? What, what, do, what do the police do when they want to verify? Well, they get their GPS on their phone, right? They track their phone. Oh, yeah, he was the Then he drove over here. Yeah, he was there. Well, the early Christians verified that these apostles really were there. Did they, have, did they have a track record of telling the truth? Are they trustworthy? Do they have a bias? Do they have a hidden agenda? Are they really trying to accomplish somebody, something else and they're lying to us? An eyewitness is not trustworthy unless they're tested. If they pass all those tests, then their testimony is the most solid evidence of any evidence. All of these eyewitnesses were tested. In Acts chapter 17, you don't have to turn there, verses 30 and 31, Paul was in Athens. And he'd gone up to this place where there were a lot of philosophers sitting around, and they just loved to hear something new. And so... Paul had been walking around. He sees the statue to the unknown God. And he says, well, I'm here today to tell you about who the unknown God is. Because I know who he is. I see you're very religious. And here's what he says to them. Having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now commanding men that everyone, everywhere, should repent. Why? Because... He has fixed a day in which we will judge, he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he determined. Now watch this. Having furnished proof to all by raising him from the dead. Now go back to John 20. Look at verse 11. So this is back at the tomb. Peter and John had been there. John had seen and believed. Verse 11 says, but Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. And so as she wept, she stooped. There's the stooping again. And looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting at the head, one at the feet, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, 
because they've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where you have laid, they have laid him. See, she doesn't believe that he's risen. And when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, this is now Jesus speaking. I don't know how far away he was, 10 feet, 15 feet, 5 feet, pretty close. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And here John, by the aid of the Holy Spirit of inspiration, takes us into Mary's mind. Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father, and my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came, announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. Now I want you to try to get the picture here. Mary's at the tomb. She stoops and looks in, sees the two angels. Now she's already very upset, right? She's very disturbed. She believes somebody has stolen the body of her her loved Lord. She doesn't believe he's risen yet. And she's, she's weeping. What kind of weeping do you think that was? She's seen these angels. That would have been very disturbing too. And she thinks the body's been stolen and she doesn't know what's going on. She doesn't believe he's risen yet. Probably, Jewish people had a history of angels appearing to them. They knew what angels were. Um, it says that they were in white, and they speak to her, and, you know, question, why are you weeping? The implication being, you don't have any real need to be weeping. I think she was, I think she was trembling, and shaking. I think maybe her hands were over her face as she was just uncontrollably crying. And she's confused and she turns around and she sees Jesus standing there. And she thinks he's the gardener. So what does that tell us? He looked like an ordinary man. He wasn't floating off the ground. He didn't have a halo. He wasn't glowing. He didn't have wings coming out of his shoulders. He looked like a regular old, regular man. And she wasn't together enough to realize who he was. Not until he said her, her name. And when she heard which I'm sure she'd heard many times before, him call her by her name. All of a sudden, she realized, it's Jesus. It's the master. And she's clinging to him. It means she's grabbed onto him. I think she was probably on her knees and she had her arms wrapped around his legs and she had her face buried into his robe and she was weeping now for joy. 
and she didn't want to let go. She had him. He'd been lost to her, but now she's got him, and he has to tell her, stop clinging. I haven't gone, I haven't gone up yet. She had the evidence in her hands. Yes, sir. Drama in the location. No, he didn't. He went through, apparently went through the wall of the, the building where the disciples were. Doors were shut. The stone had to be removed for witness. Right, to allow them to see. Yeah. We're guarding, right? Right. Well, we don't know exactly what they saw, but that's a possibility. Maybe they did see him. Okay. So let me take you back to the concept of proof. What is proof? Well, We are told now that by scientists and philosophers that proof exists only in mathematics and logic, not in science. Science can't offer proof. It can only offer theories, reasonable explanations of why something happens the way it does. When the word proofs is used in scripture, it's the Greek word tekmerion, and it basically means extremely convincing factual evidence that helps to establish the truth of something. So really, the resurrection can't be proven. It's a mystery. But the evidence is so massive that that's the only reasonable explanation. You see, we believe things that we can't prove all the time. We don't think about it. We just know there's lots of evidence, and so it's reasonable to believe it's safe for me to eat a McDonald's hamburger, and it doesn't have rats in it or something. So I eat it. So... The entire Christian faith is believing something that no one of us, none of us have ever seen, a dead person coming back to life, a resurrection. How ridiculous is that? Well, it's not ridiculous at all because it's the most reasonable conclusion. Some years ago, I was asked to go down to Hewlett-Packard with a friend of mine who worked there who had a, a friend of his who was a skeptic and he wanted me to come down and, and witness to him. So we went, went through the lunch line. I got a sandwich. We went down and sat down at this table together. And this guy says to me, he says, look, I just want you to know I'm a member of the Skeptic Society. I don't believe anything unless you can prove it. You've probably heard me tell this story before. Okay, sorry. Got to hear it again. <laughs> so I'm going, uh, what do I say now? I don't know what to say. I'm eating my sandwich and praying, Lord, what do I say? I don't know what to do. And all of a sudden, I'm sure it was the Holy Spirit, this thought came into my mind. So I turned to him and I said, are you married? He said, yeah. I said, do you have kids? Yeah, I have two. I have a boy and a girl. I said, do you love your wife and your kids? He said, yeah. 
I said, prove it. And he looked at me, and he went, okay. Tell me what you're going to tell me. He realized, he believed that he loved his family, but he couldn't prove it. The only reason you we're here this morning is not just because of the evidence, but it's because of the work of the Holy Spirit. See, the Holy Spirit uses means. And the problem with us is John chapter 3, this is the judgment, Jesus said. This is the condemnation that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds be exposed. The only reason I am here today and that I believe in Jesus as who he said he was is because the Holy Spirit opened up the spiritual eyes of my heart and gave me a desire to believe the evidence when I didn't want to. I didn't want to have my sin be exposed. I wanted to just keep thinking I was basically a good person. I went to church. I believed in God. I read the Bible once in a while. I'm okay. But the Holy Spirit uses means, and means are people and his word. Yes, Andrew. The Lord blinds their minds, yeah. That's what First Corinthians two says that there is less it's by the Spirit, you you can't believe. Yeah, he's using evidence. Right. His word is reliable. Yeah. What part does what play? Well, we, we believe that because we know who God is. We know he doesn't lie. But why do we believe that? Because God has revealed himself in Scripture. And, but it's, it's a combination of evidence, human thinking power. God said in Isaiah, come let us reason together. Well, let's think together. So, but it's also the work, it's got to be the work of the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit doesn't open blind eyes, we'll never believe. We'll never, we can maybe intellectually sort of understand, but not savingly so. Okay, we're almost out of time, so I just got to want to finish this real quick. Um, John 1, 5 says, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not overtake it. The only way to respond to our culture right now, today, with all that's going on in the world, you know, I don't have to tell you, how is the right way to respond? Boldly, with confidence, telling them the evidence from the scripture. Let the word of God do its work. Isaiah said, 
Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is no other. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back. That to me, every knee will bow. Every tongue will swear allegiance. They will say of me, only in Yahweh, our righteousness and strength. Men will come to him, that's Jesus Christ, and all who were angry at him will be put to shame. So why should you believe in Jesus Christ? Because of the way you were raised? No. Because your parents took you to church? No. Because you had a dream and God spoke to you? No. Because the love message is so appealing? No. Because you heard... Jesus, that Jesus answers prayers and heals people? Nope. We ought to boldly, certain, with certainty, believe because we've seen the evidence and we give the credit all to the Spirit of God working in us. And we need to realize that just like Mary heard Jesus speak her name, the Spirit enabled us to hear him speaking our names and calling us to himself. That's why we believe. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much that you make it really clear why you are believable, why you're the only name given among men whereby we must be saved. Lord, give us boldness to speak to our, our culture and those around us, to our families to our friends, etc. Lord, and may your name be exalted even more in these treacherous days. In Jesus' name, amen.